When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tonight, I'm going to go through all of this very, very slowly. The media has been lying to you. They were elected to run the government, not to run you over with it. Things are starting to move at an accelerated rate. Well, I don't hate you Geraldo, more than I hate the terrorists. Yeah, well, I just think you're a very unhelpful commentator. Yeah, well, we have been telling you for years this was going to be a big deal, and tonight it is. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who did not overfeed the fish, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So if you're like me, you think you know a lot about what goes on at Fox News, right? But how much time have you really spent watching it? Not much, I'll bet. Today on the show, I'll speak to someone who has been watching Fox News. A lot of it. I'll be back with Slate's Justin Peters. But first, I recently spoke on the phone with Alec Baldwin and Kurt Anderson, who got together to write a parody of Trump's first year in office in his voice. It's called You Can't Spell America Without Me. Have a listen. I'm pleased to be joined by Alec Baldwin and Kurt Anderson. They're the authors of You Can't Spell America Without Me. Alec and Kurt, I love the audiobook version of this, which is mostly in your voice, Alec. Let's hear a clip. Go right ahead. It is the unauthorized, uncensored inside story of me by me, thanks to technology from my brain to my mouth to your eyes and ears and brain directly. It's like you and I are making out, and I'm just shooting information into you, shooting streams of thought and my true me into you. Although, if you're a man, it's like we're merging and sharing power in a sci-fi movie scene like Obi-Wan Kenobi talking directly to Luke Skywalker from heaven. (laughs) That's it. Alec, how do you get into a character as Donald J. Trump? How do you psych yourself up to to inhabit him the way you do? I think that even if you do it, it's pretty much of a caricature, and there's just a couple beats you figure out, you know, uh, you try to remember, uh, you know, keep that left eyebrow up, put your face out, that you're trying to suck the windshield out of a car. And, and then, you know, whenever you do any kind of um, impressions, you want to try to get into, you know, who the person is and what's going on with them. And with Trump, it's just how do we make him as miserable as possible? He's just no matter what happens, if it's raining, if it's sunny, if he wins, if he loses, he's just miserable every day. So you're sort of imagining the the inner monologue of this guy who, as you say, is kind of a rageaholic, who's a crazy narcissist, who has to be praised all the time. And you're just imagining what pops into his head when he thinks Melania. 
What does he really what does he really feel about his wife? Yeah, and and the the take on Melania is that that there clearly it's if not a loveless marriage, at least a, a, there's some suspicion and some chill in the air uh, between the two of them, um, and some uh, conversations with lawyers have taken place. Uh, to it's a mature <laughs> marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's a mature marriage, exactly. Um, but I think another thing that's interesting to me is that, is, that, is that you look at Trump and think, well, Trump's behavior is, uh, is something that all of us can have a moment of. Like, I can be sitting in a meeting, and I can pitch a movie to a company, and they'll be indifferent toward it. And then I'll go to the movies 18 months later and I'll go, oh, that's the movie you made instead of my movie. I'm going to go, you made that? You mean we're all insecure? But we can all be bitter. Yes. We can all be bitter. But then you want to shed that so you can move on and have a healthy, productive, where Trump is stuck in that place forever. He can never migrate from that place. and, 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 And I know when I was, when we were working on the book, that I would like just like, do a little bit of Donald Trump voice as I'm writing, as one do, as I do when I write. You uh, again, when we're when we're talking about the book, you would naturally fall into the yeah. Trump speech. Yours more like with, with Al Pacino, <laughs> <laughs> Very Michael Thank Corleone. You. Thank you. Very uh, whereas whereas uh, you know you as a fellow Long Islander just become Donald Trump at, a, at the drop of a hat. You know, one thing that I've had to endure the only the only drawback to doing this is, is for me to be throttled by uh, Anderson here. Uh, I'm going to you call him Anderson now when I get a little, when I'm a little bitter, I am a little bitter about this. For him, always equating me with Trump in our Long Island roots. You're from Long Island. He'll talk about Trump, Trump this, Trump this, Trump this. And you understand that. You're from Long Island. Like all of us from Long Island are in the same, you know, kind of, we all live in the same uh, Bergen hunt and fish club that we're having. But you're, you're, the, you're, you're when it comes out good and he's when it comes out bad. That's yeah, good. and fair point. I mean, Queens is, is technically part of New York City, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you for pointing out to from Curtis from Nebraska, right? So the pictures are fantastic. And you did that. There's one right in front of Trump Tower with you in costume and character w- waving as Donald Trump. How did you how were you allowed to do that? I mean, there are cops standing next to you, but they don't seem to be bothered. I don't think that they really I'm assuming that uh, if we did anything that was wrong or actionable with the cops, they would have pounced on us. We were nervous. Yeah, we, were, we walked in. They were like, hmm, you know, but we went there. And I mean, apparently we weren't doing anything illegal. You're allowed to walk in front of those I'd walk those streets. You'd like take pictures in front of that building. It's a it's a public space, and they didn't they didn't bother us at all. Uh, and in fact, the the doorman there was couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. To to his fake boss in yeah. the form of Alec Baldwin. We they, think he, we think he's since been sent back to Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> they get all types there. My uh, one of my favorite pictures of the book is on the flap, the author portrait, where you have the red tie down to the bottom of the crotch on your pants, which is just the way he ties the tie, but a little more. Yeah, a little bit more. Kind of that Bill Clinton Rolling Stone cover, <laughs> where Bill had the long, long tie. Well, and indeed, the whole the challenge with this book is doing the way he does it, but a little more. And yeah. uh, with Jared, the Jewish son-in-law, what's his what's his private feeling about him? Uh, well, I, I think uh, so far, uh, uh, reality has not uh, contradicted or overtaken our fictional version because it's, again and again in the book, he is clearly a little suspicious of of uh, of Jared and talks to him about it being a too skinny of a gym rat and and perhaps being a little jealous of his relationship with with. Uh, the perfect and wonderful Ivanka. So I don't know. I I, I feel like we are kind of on the money in terms of the depiction of that, that relationship. And then worrying that in one of the later chapters that uh, Jared's going to be one of the people who flips on him. 
Could be happening now. In my ways, it could be happening in a room right now. But, but someone asked me before uh, in an interview, they said you know, that he thinks he's the, the godfather, and there's a lot of godfather metaphors in his language. And, and does he think he's Don Corleone or whatever? And if so, who's the Fredo in the, uh, who do you think is the Fredo? Well, he goes back sometimes. Once he thought maybe Mike Flynn was the Fredo, then he thinks maybe Jared's the Fredo. I think Flynn's the Fredo. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. the only one that's clearly stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As long as there is a Fredo. Alec Baldwin and Kurt Anderson, thank you for joining me thank on you. Trumpcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Joining me in the studio today is the slate writer Justin Peters. He's just back from an amazing experiment. He spent three weeks watching Fox News. Justin, how are you? You look okay. Yeah, I've recovered nicely. You know, my, uh, you wouldn't think that an assignment that requires you to sit on a couch all day and watch TV would be super stressful. And yet it was, but I'm glad I did it. I'm also glad it's over. How many, just to ask, how many hours a day did you spend watching, uh, Fox News? And did you have any sources of other sources of information? Um, yeah, I think if I would have artificially limited myself to just Fox News as my only information source, I would have been, you know, completely destroyed by uh, the experiment. But I, I read newspapers and didn't watch any other television. But it was good to have other sources coming in to be able to evaluate the things they were saying on Fox against the things that the other news sources were saying. In terms of how long I went every day, you know, good eight or nine hours. Honestly, like I would spend a full work day watching, then I'd go and get some food and walk around the block seven times to try to clear my head. And then I'd sit back down and watch uh, the evening programming. So I'm like a lot of people, Justin. I think I know what's on Fox News, but I never actually watch it. I mean, when people share a clip on Twitter, I, I look at it, but it's the things that are particularly outrageous that people share. So what surprised you when you actually spent all this time watching all of it? What surprised me is that most of it is fine. Most of it is actually fine. It's news with a conservative slant. And the slant is manifested in the stories they cover, the emphasis they give them, the guests they have. But the vast majority of the programming, you know, is, you know, occurs during the day when it's just sort of a, a newsroom stories with two anchors, you know, repeating the same stories basically once an hour and, you know, guests and stuff. That was not substantially different from the sort of stuff you'd see on CNN and MSNBC in terms of structure. Some of the hosts are actually pretty good. You know, Shepard Smith is a quality anchor. He's someone I would watch uh, whatever network he's on. But everyone knows he's the exception, right? He's the, he's the good guy on Fox who, who seems to play it straight. Is he the only one? Are there other Shepard Smith type straight journalists on Fox? Uh, there's more than you think. Uh, Brett Baer is pretty good. I like Neil Cavuto. Um, Bill Hemmer in the mornings is a decent uh, news person. Uh, I like Sandra Smith. I think Harris Faulkner does a decent job. Throughout the day, you know, you spend most of your time watching. You'll be like, well, I might not agree with this politically, but it doesn't, you know, raise any substantial hackles. But I sort of think of it as like, say I invite you to a party at my house, right? And I introduce you to four people. And the first person I introduce you to uh, sort of spits in your face and you wipe it off and you're like, why did I come to this party? And the second person I introduce you to is okay. You know, it's someone, if you saw him on the subway, you'd wave, you might sit next to him, right? Third person is also okay. You know, the third person is you know, a decent, decent guy. 
And the fourth person I introduce you to punches you in the stomach, <laughs> dumps a drink on your head, and then like kicks you in the shins. When you go home that night, you're not going to, you know, think to yourself, you know, I met two great people at that party, right? <laughs> you're going to be like, well, someone kicked me in the shins and dumped a drink on me at the end and they spit my face in, you know, in, in, in the beginning. And that's why I think it's like completely fair to evaluate Fox News or to, you know, take your impressions of Fox based on the worst people at the party, because that's what we do in real life. You know, if we have an experience that's like partially good and like partially really bad, we're going to remember the really bad stuff. And, you know, that's that's only fair. I'm the one who threw the party. I chose to sort of invite the guests I brought. And if you come to me and say, you know, I met two decent people, but the other two friends of yours were real jerks. And I'm like, sorry, Jake, you know, we have all types of people here. You know, it's a fair and balanced guest list. You know, it says something about my judgment. And that's sort of the frame I sort of took, came away from this experiment with. Who are those worst people at the party? I mean, Sean Hannity, obviously. Yes, he is. He is. But he's the one who, you know, kicked you in the shins and threw the drink on you. He is by far the least journalistic person on the network. And he's even said in sort of interviews, I do not think of myself as a journalist. I want Donald Trump to be president. You know, I've been giving him advice throughout the campaign. And it's very clear that his show is a news adjacent appendage of the Trump administration that is manifested in the sort of stories that he covers, the way he covers them, the guests he has. Um, Laura Ingram's new show. She's the new, she's the replacement in effect for Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, exactly. She's the, um, you know, once Hannity gets your blood boiling, you know, Ingram is here to sort of cool you down before you go to bed. But she is basically coming from the same values as, you know, Hannity is, you know, very much this sort of unrepentant nativism, this uh, very sort of Breitbart uh, mentality. Fox and Friends in the morning is... This is the president's favorite the show. President's this favorite is the show. show that actually the president actually seems to get his core information to start the day from, and he's always tweeting in response to things he's seen on Fox and Friends. And I am ashamed to say I've never watched it for more than a couple of minutes at a time. No, you shouldn't be ashamed. I mean, why would you watch it for more than a couple? I mean, I, I guess if you want to know what because it's in, because it's an influential. Influential. Yeah. I mean, this is a show about the about the president. So I I think uh, well, you're here to tell us what what is the president getting from that show? What's it like? So the first piece. I wrote for the blog um, was sort of an overview of Fox and Friends. And I think I called it like the authoritarian today show. It is basically, it exists to allow viewers to start their days confident that someone in the world is dumber than they are. (laughs) That's sort of the point of the show as far as I was able to tell, right? For people to be sort of in the beginning of their day, validated and reinforced in their biases and beliefs. And for three hours, they sort of present an endless parade of liberal hypocrisy and sort of celebrity stupidity pitted against sort of very sort of ostentatious displays of patriotism and sort of country music singers who they come on the show to talk about how much they love to salute the flag and these leathery military men who come on and express their opinions that are, you know, arrived at through lived experience rather than derived sort of observation. And you come away from the three hours watching Fox and Friends, you know, thinking this is, it's destructive. It's destructive. It's not just morning television, because as you said, the president watches it. You can sort of, every single morning, 
uh, with, you know, few exceptions. He will tweet something between the hours of 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. that is in direct response to something that was aired on Fox and Friends, which means this show has more power than most news shows on television in American history. And they're, I was going to say they're squandering that power, but from their perspective, they're not. They're using it wisely, right? They are saying stuff that they know is designed to get the president going, and he's he's taking the bait every time. Is the show highly conscious of that? I mean, given that the president's watching and everyone knows the president's watching, are oh, they yeah. kind of talking to him? Yeah, oh, they, yeah, they know. I, I think I, I read somewhere that this was the first time in the history of the world that someone who thinks the television is talking to them, he's actually right. It actually is like Fox and Friends is talking to the president. And you know that because, you know, a few times a week, they will display a tweet that the president just issued on screen. They'll be like, well, this just in, like the president just tweeted this. And it's something that was obviously in response to a segment that just, they just discussed and, and went on the air. It's this sort of bizarre feedback loop. People like me do a lot of Kremlinology about Fox News. You know, Roger Ailes, the the evil genius who created this this whole style, is now dead. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, their number one anchor, is gone. Megyn Kelly, who was their number three anchor, is gone. The Murdoch sons, who have been reported to be embarrassed by Fox News, are possibly taking over, certainly taking more of a role in the management of it. Do you detect these changes at work as a viewer? No. No. You, I mean, if those changes were at work as a viewer, they would not have given Laura Ingram a 10 p.m. show. I mean, the fact of the matter is Fox News, as of last month, just celebrated its 190th month as the top cable news network. It is, I think, the second uh, highest rated cable network in general, below just ESPN. Um, whatever the Murdochs may or may not believe in their hearts about the rightness or wrongness of their programming, it's making money. And as businessmen um, who have a long sort of history of making money with this network, you know, they are not, in my opinion, going to, you know, take a stand to save American democracy uh, if as long as they're um the ratings are as high as they are. Right. It can, you can make an ideological decision for financial reasons. Yes. Yeah. Right. And as long as those things are aligned, as long as the economic opportunity is aligned with the pro-Trump opportunity, it won't change. No. Yeah, that's right. And as soon as they fall out of alignment, that is when you might expect a change to come if it ever is going to come. And, you know, you have seen in the past that Fox has been unafraid to jettison personalities who become toxic in the marketplace. You know, they stuck by O'Reilly only until his advertisers started to desert him. Same with Glenn Beck, right? Those guys, they didn't get pushed out just because in O'Reilly's case of the allegations against him or in Beck's case because of the sort of conspiracy mongering. They got pushed out because... No one wanted to advertise on their show. Now, I know Media Matters has been trying to start a campaign to encourage advertisers to flee the Hannity program. I don't know how successful that's been, but unless and until, you know, advertisers leave like en masse, you know, Hannity is going to continue to go on the air every night, spinning his 15 minute opening monologues that basically accuse the left of everything that 
the mainstream media says is true of the uh, far right. The the rise of super right wing media, Breitbart, Alex Jones, I mean, really conspiratorial in some cases, crazy disinformation, fraudulent news has done two things to Fox News. One, it has made them in some ways seem moderate and reasonable because there's stuff that's popular further out to the right. And it's also created potential commercial threat. I mean, people who run Fox obviously have to be frightened about the possibility that Steve Bannon, now in exile, will will lead Breitbart into some, some kind of attack on, on what they're doing from a more populist position. Do you get a sense of Fox News in relation to the what's right of them watching it all this time? Um, yeah, I think that's a really great point, you know, and I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that sort of Ingram and Hannity are sort of the, their commentary is the sort of thing you'd expect to see on Breitbart. And I think it's fair to to presume that they are so prominent these days as sort of a hedge against sort of Breitbart sort of snapping up these personalities and banning and trying to start their own like thing. I mean, we think back to the middle of the presidential campaign where a lot of people, I think I even wrote an article to this effect, you know, saying that Trump's real aim in running for president wasn't to become president, but to set the stage to start a TV network. And I think that sort of like threat of, you know, a network coming from Fox's right is very much on the Murdoch's mind as they are coming up with uh, their programming for the, you know, first bit of the Trump era. There are obviously some decent human beings working at Fox, Shepard Smith, Bill Hemmer, a couple couple others you mentioned. It's a little like the dilemma with decent people inside the Trump administration, right? Do you want them to stand on principle and get the hell out of there? Or do you want them to stay in there and try to make Fox a little – Fox News a little less horrible than it would be without them? Well, I mean, you always want in sort of – sort of, you know, intrinsic justice sense for – the good people inside bad structures to stand up and say, like, I'm not going to be tainted by association with this anymore. I'm walking out and I'm leaving. I think if that would happen at Fox, then they would just fill those slots with worse people and they would continue to lead the ratings. I think it's a good thing to have some reasonable people inside the network sort of exerting whatever internal pressure they might sort of exert to actually try to stay in sort of a fact-based reality instead of this non-fact-based world. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about Fox and sexual harassment. I'm sure no other media organization has ever had a kind of uh, abuse of women almost as part of its business model. I mean, it was Roger Ailes was doing it for his entire career. Bill O'Reilly's career just ended over it. These are the people who are the most prominent people at the network. How do they talk about that on Fox News? Those guys are gone, but it's since become the number one story in the country, or at least it did for a period of time around the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Are they dealing with it or are they just burying it, moving it on, moving on? Um, they are largely burying their own history and culpability in a rush to paint sexual assault and harassment as a strictly uh, liberal issue. As And you saw that in their coverage of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, which, 
You, know, they're you not, mean it's a liberal – they want to make it an issue that liberals aren't dealing with sexual harassers who are liberal. But but doesn't that run up against their their feeling or their view that talking about sexual harassment is a form of political correctness, that they don't like anybody talking about it? I mean, I don't think they – when Fox has an opportunity to spotlight liberal hypocrisy, they will take that opportunity. And that's what they've done. And that was the frame – with which they covered the Weinstein scandal, that look at all of these celebrities and Democrats who were so close to Weinstein, who went to his parties, applauded his films, took his donations. They had to know they were complicit. And they used this sort of silence on the part of so many prominent uh, entertainers and big name Democrats as sort of a way to sort of invalidate anything else that they might sort of say to say, well, how can you trust their opinion when they tell us about global warming or anything? Look at, they didn't say anything with Weinstein. And on occasion, there were a few Fox personalities who would stand up and say, you know, we've had our own history with this. Geraldo Rivera, you know, you know, he's a, one of the few reasonable uh, correspondents at Fox. I came to really appreciate Geraldo's work. You know, he said once on Hannity. I may quote that phrase, I've come to really appreciate Geraldo's work. <laughs> My God, what's happened to your standards, <laughs> Justin? <laughs> help me, help me, Jake. Uh, but you know, he, he said that to Hannity when, you know, Hannity was saying he had this, Hannity loves talking about the casting couch in Hollywood, you know, as an example of liberal hypocrisy. And he said this to uh, Geraldo once. He was like, you know, the casting couch is a real thing. And Geraldo was like, you know, I know it is. I've done a dozen exposés on the casting couch. But I would submit that the perpetrators do not stick to certain ideological sort of like sides. They're on the right. They're on the left. It is not an ideological issue. And I bemoan the fact that we rejoice when this happens to our ideological enemies, and yet we bury our heads in the sand when it happens to us. Because Geraldo was one of the people who originally stuck up for Roger Ailes, I believe, but then then I think he apologized for doing that. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah I mean, Her- Geraldo's in a weird, I can't believe the discussion came around to Geraldo, but like <laughs> he's, he's in a weird sort of position at Fox where he is one of the few personalities there who had a tremendously successful career before Fox, right? You don't think of Geraldo as a Fox guy. You think of him as the guy who found dust in Al Capone's vault, you know? Uh, So like Geraldo has this sort of credibility that everyone at the network respects and like everyone seems to like him, which gives him the ability to be this sort of like free agent and just float around from show to show and sort of stay buddy-buddy with everyone while also sort of casually and respectfully inserting these uh, divergent opinions into the conversation. It's sort of cool to watch when he does it. And everyone has the same question, which is, how old is that guy anyway? Right? He's <laughs> somewhere between 46 and 91, right? <laughs> That's the big question, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Justin, you went from watching presumably very little Fox to, to this total immersion method, and now you're going going cold turkey. Is there anything in, on Fox you're still going to watch? I came to really enjoy the show The Five, which there is no reason for this to have happened. I can only, you know, consider it a form of brain damage. Uh, but it's their, you know, discussion show that happens at 5 p.m. There's five people on it. They sometimes discuss as many as five topics. I'm not sure how the show got its name, but, you know, regardless, it's sort of a fun watch. They've got 
well-balanced panel of people who are funny and enjoy each other and always ribbing each other. Juan Williams is on it. He's one of the few liberals on Fox News who is allowed to finish a sentence, maybe even two <laughs> sentences. You know, um, Dana Perino is, you know, a smart, moderate conservative voice. Former Bush person. Exactly. Former Bush uh, White House press secretary. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Greg Gutfeld. I like Greg Gutfeld. You know, I think he's funny. Um, he's sort of a weirdo. He's got a bunch of dumb like opinions, but he says funny stuff. Uh, and then there's Jesse Waters, which, you know, oafs are in ascendance these days. So it's good to have at least one <laughs> oaf on the panel. And Kimberly Guilfoyle. It's a good mix. I will watch that show if I happen to be watching TV at 5 p.m. and there's no good Simpsons reruns on. Other than that, you know, I'm... <sighs> You know, I'm not tuning in to watch any of Hannity's opening monologues uh, unless I'm paid to do so again. I've been speaking to Slate writer and three weeks Fox News survivor Justin Peters. Justin, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. That's it for today's show. Do you follow us on Twitter? We're easy to find. At Real Trumpcast, you'll get all the news about the show, plus extras. And in the control booth, Jason DeLeon, our producer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.